You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? And that was Vinnie Paz with an excerpt from Writings on Disobedience and Democracy. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can follow You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at YCBNeutral. You can find all the back episodes and some links to make a recommendation, send me a message, or make a donation at youcan'tbeneutral.com. First up is a piece published at straight.com. This is written by David Suzuki. When people do things they shouldn't, they often try to distract attention from their actions. Guardian writer John George Monbiot notes that many corporations fueling the planet's destruction spend significant resources to shift attention away from themselves and onto us. Quote, the deliberate effort to stop us seeing the bigger picture began in 1953 with a campaign called Keep America Beautiful. It was founded by packaging manufacturers motivated by the profits they could make by replacing reusable containers with disposable plastic, he writes. In 2004, the advertising company Ogilvy & Mather, working for the oil giant BP, took this blame shifting a step further by inventing the personal carbon footprint. It was a useful innovation, but it also had the effect of diverting political pressure from the producers of fossil fuels to consumers. Greenwashing is another way corporations divert attention from their true ecological impacts. As British psychology professor Stephen Riker points out, quote, One recent McDonald's spot boasts of the way the company is recycling cooking oil into truck fuel, coffee cups into greeting cards, and plastic toys into children's playgrounds. The problem is that it makes no mention of the fact that McDonald's beef footprint alone constitutes 22 million metric tons of greenhouse gas emissions a year. Facing the real issues often leaves us feeling anger, anxiety, and despair. While these are reasonable responses to the environmental crises engulfing us, the multi-billion dollar self-help industry has profited enormously by convincing us that fixing ourselves is a priority. How do we balance the need for personal change with systemic change when both are necessary? Personal actions can create consumer demand for sustainably made products, model greener behaviors, and foster empowerment. But focusing on the personal runs the risk of eclipsing our responsibility to also marshal systemic change. As Riker notes, McDonald's advertising approach is emblematic of the way in which companies seek to continue with business as usual by distracting us from where the real problems lie. Its adverts represent just one of many strategies by which this is accomplished. One of the most common methods is to turn the climate crisis from a systemic into an individual issue. It's hard to take on systems, but until we do, they'll continue to grind up nature and spit out profit where rivers, forests, and meadows once stood. Systemic and environmental racism underpin these systems. Systemic racism provides advantages and inheritances, privileging white people in employment, education, justice, and social standing. It enabled the mandate under which colonizers have invaded lands, occupied indigenous territories, and exploited nature for financial gain. As a result of environmental racism, indigenous and racialized communities have been placed at greater risk of living adjacent to land degradation and pollution from industrial activities and waste disposal. Our economic system has strong hands upon the bellows. 
It promotes growth with no limits, which leads to such degradation of nature that around a million species are at risk of extinction, more than ever in human history. This economic system also results in gross inequities. It's possible for one person to make $36 billion in a day, more than the yearly gross domestic product of some countries. As Monbiot writes, the richest 1% of the world's people, those earning more than $172,000 a year, produce 15% of the world's carbon emissions, twice the combined impact of the poorest 50%. He proposes a new system in which there is private sufficiency in public luxury. In his words, while there is not enough ecological or even physical space on earth for everyone to enjoy private luxury, there is enough to provide everyone with public luxury. Magnificent parks, hospitals, swimming pools, art galleries, tennis courts, and transport systems, playgrounds, and community centers. It's a lot to take on, and it's good to check out at times, to find respite in binge-watching, books, self-care routines, or nature, as long as we check back in. Change won't happen until we demand it, and unless we face the flames, metaphorically and increasingly literally, there is little chance we will be sufficiently motivated to put them out. It's not all work. Joy can be found in dreaming up creative responses. Think of the many clever protest signs and joining in community. To paraphrase Joan Baez, activism is the best antidote to despair. Next up is a piece published at theguardian.com. This is written by Anand Pandian. The border is like our back door, a concrete salesman named Chris told me in January 2017. You leave it open, and anyone can walk right in. It was a day of Trump's presidential inauguration, and we were chatting on the exhibition floor of a trade show in Las Vegas called World of Concrete. Circular saws, cement mixers, gleaming new trucks. It was an unusual place to talk about the politics of immigration. But the simple promise of a concrete wall between the U.S. and Mexico had flung a business tycoon into the White House and I wanted to understand what this was about. Chris was a millennial from a small town in western Ohio, with a trim beard and short sandy hair. He projected an air of casual self-sufficiency. I don't really like neighbors, he quipped, speaking with a dose of wry humor about how far he chose to live from other people. I was struck by the mismatch between the salesman's genial manner and his suspiciousness his sense of anyone beyond his home or country, as a potential threat. I wondered as we talked amid a sea of construction equipment, what it would take to build genuine warmth and concern for outsiders, rather than such walls. For the last five years, I've crisscrossed the United States as an anthropologist, pursuing conversation and debate between the coasts and heartland. I set out in 2016 to grasp the appeal of the border wall, the fantasy of sealing off the country with a stark symbolic barrier. What I learned is that such barricades appeal to many Americans because they resonate with familiar boundaries in their daily lives. While Trump's presidency has passed, the defensive thinking that drove his ascent remains a pervasive and powerful force. I think of the Gen Xer with the bushy beard and colorful tattoos down the length of his arms, whom I saw hawking a motion sensor lighting system with these words of advice. I know it sounds cold, but you want to keep people away as best you can. Or this motto and promise from the home security company ADT, quote, a line in the sand between your family and an uncertain world. Time and again, I've heard such ideas expressed by Americans I've met and spoken with around the country in my job as an anthropologist, businessmen and truck drivers, police officers, and media personalities. The give and take of neighbors has long been a foundation for our democracy, philosopher Nancy Rosenblum writes, 
but cultural and economic forces have worked stark distinctions. Insider versus outsider, familiar versus stranger, safety versus threat, deep into the texture of our daily lives. These hard lines and everyday divides fuel our political troubles in ways we don't always realize. To get to this gated community on Florida's Treasure Coast, you have to drive through a continuous stretch of walled compounds, everything inside hidden from view by towering hedges and palms. I show my credentials at the guardhouse and the railway gate swings open. As I drive with the security director past sprawling homes and unnervingly empty streets, Timothy tells me about a residential population, wealthy, mostly white, primed for disaster and desperate for repose. One out of every six American houses in a residential community is secured now by such community walls or fences. And I met Timothy to try to understand why. Residents who live here are mostly seeking psychological assurance, he admitted. They like us smiling and waving at them. Contemporary gated communities build on a century of intentional segregation and suburban white flight. Suburban interiors were designed as, quote, escape capsules to enable their independence from the outside world. Architectural historian Andrea Vesentini has shown, built as shelters from the unpredictability of urban life. The pandemic has magnified the appeal of such distance and defense, with more features like security cameras, video doorbells, and HEPA air filters built into new houses than ever before. These histories have profoundly shaped how Americans live in relation to each other as much as where. So much of everyday life and leisure now takes place in secluded spaces. The front porch sessions with neighbors and passers-by that once epitomized American social life have given way to more private gatherings on the backyard deck, or time with the television and other screens indoors. These changes lessen the chance for happenstance conversation with neighbors and strangers. A realtor in Fargo, North Dakota helped me understand the significance of these shifts. A fit man in his early 60s, Paul had worked in the Fargo-Moorhead metropolitan real estate market for more than 20 years. He took me one morning to a compact new house in a middle-class subdivision, the smell of fresh paint lingering in the cool air inside. Standing in the living room and looking to the front, I felt enclosed in the space, almost hemmed in. The house was fronted by a three-stall garage and one narrow window onto the street and sidewalk. Turn to the back, though, and you were flooded with light from every direction. The rear of the house framed with big panes of glass instead of walls. Doesn't it bother people that there aren't many windows in the front? I asked Paul. You can hardly see what's happening on the street. The inside is what they care about, he replied. And, he added, pointing out the sunroom at the rear of the house and the back patio beyond, living on the back. This is where we engage socially with our neighbors. The small patio is lodged between other private decks and yards, a place to socialize with others by choice rather than necessity. This is my space. I'll engage with who I want, when I want, the realtor explained. It's a bit selfish, he acknowledged. Whether it comes to the climate emergency or systemic racism, the migrant crisis, or ongoing pandemic, so much turns on whether we can acknowledge and accept the intertwining of our separate lives. But it's not just our homes that are styled now like defensive fortresses. Over the last decade, imposing vehicles like SUVs and trucks have come to dominate the American car market, far outpacing smaller sedans and sales. These are automobiles designed with aggressive profiles and built as defensive steel cocoons, often marketed as ways to survive an uncertain and even hostile world. As an automotive designer in Los Angeles told me, such vehicles appeal in a society that is, quote, suffering a case of insecurity. There is a political side to such choices. 
Researchers have found that cities with more sedans than pickup trucks will probably vote Democratic in a presidential election, while those with more pickup trucks will probably vote Republican. But it isn't simply a matter of signaling partisan affiliation through automotive choice. Vehicles say a lot about what people care most about. Consider an exchange I had one morning in Los Angeles with a driver of a Cadillac Escalade a few years ago. He was an Asian-American dad, like me, and we'd run into each other on the driveway of a cheery and progressive nursery school on the west side. I'd walked my daughter there that morning. His daughter was buckled into one of the Escalade's seats. I was struck by how tiny the child looked inside the three-ton vehicle, how challenging it would be for her to clamber down to the ground outside. The hulking white automobile was brand new, still without license plates. Why an Escalade, I asked. It's perceived to be safe, he replied. You know, more mass. More mass. The phrase kept playing on my mind as I walked back home. Whose safety was secured by all the vehicular mass hurtling down American roads? And at whose expense? The rise of the SUV in global automotive markets is the second largest cause of increasing carbon emissions over the last decade, more significant than shipping, aviation, and heavy industry. And at an everyday scale, there are serious consequences for those who encounter them in collisions. Because of their rigid and heavy frames, SUVs and trucks are far more dangerous than conventional sedans for the pedestrians, cyclists, and children at play who share American streets with automobiles. Pedestrian deaths on roadways in the United States have soared by more than 50% over the last decade. Someone in an armored cockpit, someone else on their own two feet. This too is a polarized encounter. Low-income Americans and people of color are much more likely to be struck and killed while walking, which brings home another difficult truth in these developments. Indifference is a privilege. Some can afford to seal themselves off from the world beyond, while those left outside must fend for themselves as best they can. The fortress mindset thrives on suspicion, and the urge to protect oneself can make shared spaces and resources seem more dangerous than they are. Take that necessity for life itself, the water we drink. American consumers now buy an astounding 75 billion disposable bottles of water each year. Each a tiny enclosure of an essential resource, a shelter made for one. The bottled water industry has capitalized on widespread unease about the quality of public water supplies in the United States. Meanwhile, as interest in investment in shared public infrastructure lags, people are left with polluted and contaminated water, forced to rely on bottled alternatives. Two years before the pandemic began, I attended a bottled water trade show in Texas. Most everyone walked around with a small disposable bottle in hand, always closed, the little cap screwed back on after every sip. I don't drink public water, people would avow, wrinkling their noses in distaste at the very idea of a drinking fountain. Someone else's mouth is on it and over it. Water fountains were switched off across the country in 2020 when the pandemic struck but they'd already been disappearing for years, and how many will return remains uncertain. Bottled water is regulated so loosely that its quality is difficult to judge. Yet many Americans have come to believe again in the purity of a resource untouched by the wrong people. A dark, contemporary echo of the segregated fountains of the Jim Crow era. At the bottled water trade show, I spoke with a middle-aged white man in a brown suit who worked for a water conditioning company in West Texas. I noticed his habit of crumpling up each disposable bottle into a little ball when it was empty, and I asked him about this gesture. I like to put things away, he told me, describing how he'd throw these crinkled balls of plastic into the back of his SUV while he was driving. I imagine them piling up in heaps, a traveling signpost for the mountain of waste that all of us are building together. 
There's a curious resonance between his faith in a sealed bottle and a culture that celebrates the invulnerable body. Americans are often encouraged to imagine their own bodies as armored enclosures to seal off against the outside world. Think of a bottled sports drink like body armor or biosteel. Your body, your fortress, their taglines read. The coronavirus pandemic has supercharged such ideas, setting off a boom in personal disinfectant products and touchless technology, making it easier to deny the truth that we depend on each other for our well-being. The deep resistance to face masks and vaccination in the United States also relies quite often on a highly individualized sense of bodily autonomy. I think of a middle-aged white businessman from Michigan with whom I've debated the pandemic for many months. A staunch libertarian, he considers compulsory public health precautions as tantamount to slavery. They deny, he says, quote, my feelings, my rights, my personal body. Regular exposure to different points of view could complicate such die-hard convictions but our fractured media have deepened the existing fissures of American society. Walls at home and on the road, shielding the body from exposure and the mind from uncomfortable ideas. These interlocking divides make it more difficult to take unfamiliar people and perspectives seriously, harder to acknowledge the needs of strangers, to trust their motives and empathize with their struggles. In an atomized society, others become phantoms all too easily grist for the mill of resentment and mistrust. There's a deep and pernicious history at work here. Long-standing patterns of neighborhood racial segregation have inflamed the prejudice against outgroups, bolstering stereotypes, as a political science Ryan Enos and others have shown. When such divisions are reproduced at an everyday scale, the gulf between self and other widens even further, and everyone becomes a potential outsider. But this isn't all that is happening or could yet happen. Around the country in 2020, the pandemic spurred a return to socializing with neighbors on front yards and porches. Cities and towns have carved out new places for walking, biking, and outdoor life, new ways of sharing public space with people, known and unknown. It remains to be seen whether these are temporary adjustments or more enduring experiments. Movements for mutual aid, racial justice, and cultural solidarity have also brought Americans together, spurring more radical commitments to collective caretaking, redrawing the line between stranger and kin. The vitality of such movements depends on adequate space and support. Calls abound to redesign our personal and public spaces for conviviality rather than isolation. Commons, parks, and open streetscapes living quarters and resources arranged to encourage social awareness, not solipsisms. Communication platforms that nurture contrary lines of thought. These spaces can nurture the capacity to live and thrive alongside others, unlike oneself, working against the tendency to reject and retreat. Our feelings for others are structural realities as much as personal qualities. In a society built on walls of indifference, Empathy will remain an elusive hope. For the death of the heart is one of the most tragic consequences of segregation, as James Baldwin observed. You don't know what's happening on the other side of the wall. And I think all these ways that we try to divide ourselves and successfully have in many ways divided ourselves from each other especially in suburban life, in all of the separate houses on separate plots, and these days not really knowing your neighbors in many, many suburban areas, people don't get to know their neighbors anymore. Um, it's part of the myth of rugged individualism that we are taught in school that we are taught in the media that that is held in a high esteem rugged individualism doing it for yourselves picking yourselves up 
by your bootstraps. It's a myth. Individualism can only take you so far. If you live in a modern society, almost everything you interact with was made by somebody else, made by somebody else's labor that you acquired in one way or another to help you sustain your life and live comfortably if you've been able to do so. Many people aren't able to obtain those things in the society and in the economic structures that we live within. Rugged individualism is bullshit. You depend on so many other people. You wouldn't hear me. You wouldn't be listening to this if you didn't depend on me to create it, to record it, and to put it into a place where you could access it. I wouldn't have read you those words that I just read you if someone else hadn't written them. And if someone didn't build this computer that I use to both access those words and record them so you can hear them. Someone built my house. Someone built my house in the 1930s. Uh, someone built this roof over my head. Someone painted these walls. It was not me. The comfort of my life, to the extent I have a any comfort in my life in this world, was not created by me. It was not my individualism that, my, my individual work ethic that created everything around me that provides life for me. Sure, our economic system provided a means by which I could obtain this, but that economic system is grossly flawed and does not provide that same ability fairly to everyone. So even in the most gross capitalistic economy where the mantra is competition, that competition is good, that competition breeds innovation, that competition makes things better, that competition accelerates uh, our, our lives by accelerating those things which we have access to that help us survive. It's, it's, there is competition. There is competition in that system. I think it probably does more to harm the ability for people to live fulfilled lives than it does to meet those needs for people to live fulfilled lives. No company builds a product themselves. They get resources from somewhere else. They manufacture it somewhere else before they deliver it to the consumer. It's a, it's a huge network and a huge web of interdependencies. We are utterly dependent upon each other for the lives that we lead. And it's offensive to me that the structures by which we facilitate these interactions are based on white supremacy, based on discrimination, based on racism, based on separating people into groups and not providing adequate resources, adequate material goods, adequate uh, meanings to sustain a, a thriving life to all in an equitable manner. And that's one of these structures that we need to remake in a manner that offers everyone the basics to sustain a life that allows them to fulfill their life, live a fulfilled life to the, the best of their ability and to the extent that they desire. And we have a hell of a long way to go 
to get there. Next up is a piece called The Myth of Tribalism. This is published at theatlantic.com, written by Dominic Packer and J. Van Bavel. By now, even people who differ on nearly all issues seem to agree on at least one thing. American politics has become riven by tribal conflict. Tucker Carlson claims that, quote, schools are creating tribalism in our kids. Former President Barack Obama has warned that we risk, quote, turning away from democratic principles in favor of tribalism and might makes right. As the journalist George Packer, now of The Atlantic, once summarized the problem, quote, American politics today requires a word as primal as tribe to get at the blind allegiances and huge passions of partisan affiliation. Tribes demand loyalty, and in return they confer the security of belonging. their badges of identity, not of thought. The underlying psychology of us and them appears grounded in deep-rooted human tendencies to carve the world into groups and discriminate in favor of one's own. But although the notion that group solidarity leads inevitably to prejudice, animosity, and conflict is common, it is also incorrect and potentially dangerous. And I would say more than potentially dangerous. It is dangerous. Humans do seem to possess the innate capacity to identify with members of their own groups. People in every culture share the same propensity to form coalitions. This tendency is what the anthropologist Donald Brown calls a human universal. But it does not lead inexorably towards intergroup conflict. Groupishness, a term some researchers use to describe humans' tendency to identify with social groups, can be the source of a much wider repertoire of actions, including cooperation, altruism, embracing diversity, and helping people radically different from ourselves. In our new book, the two of us argue that to explain collective behavior, researchers and commentators must distinguish between two key concepts, how strongly members identify with their group, and its norms. Some members of the same group, for example, often feel a stronger sense of connection to the collective than others. Holiday Catholics are less committed than worshippers who attend every Mass. Zealous sports fans attend every home game and despise fickle supporters who pay attention only when their team makes the playoffs. Members who strongly identify with a group generally conform more to its norms. But those norms vary dramatically. For every hate group, another group, such as the Red Cross or Doctors Without Borders, exists that is committed to helping others. And the more deeply members identify with the latter, the more likely they are to help people different from themselves, even at significant personal cost. Recognizing that collective norms can be either positive or negative is a key to understanding why and when tribalism occurs. It also suggests how different groups can find common ground. When people use the term tribalism, they are usually aiming to capture a toxic dynamic in collective life, such as the one that characterizes much of contemporary American politics. But what happens between groups is often both a symptom and a reinforcer of unhealthy patterns within individual groups as well. Such patterns include the suppression of dissenting voices and a cult mentality in which members seek only to affirm one another's worldview. These characteristics describe how people can behave in groups, but they do not always apply. Indeed, in most cases, they do not. If you think about the many groups in your life, such as your workplace or your daughter's soccer team, how many of them are at war when the sinister outgroup and try to suppress intergroup contact or internal dissent? Neither of us belongs to many, if any, groups that fit this description. When humans identify with a group, we are motivated to pursue the group's interests and goals. But while that feeling provides the fuel for collective action, group norms set the direction, 
determining what forms those actions take. In some experiments, psychology researchers have sought to manipulate whether people believe that their own group tries to treat outsiders fairly. Participants who are led to believe that their group normalizes fairness engage in less in-group favoritism than do people who think that their group has a discriminatory norm. Rather than adopting discriminatory norms, real-life groups can and often do embrace norms of tolerance, acceptance, and inclusion. In a recent experiment, social psychologists questioned Italian high schoolers to discern which of their classmates, in the students' view, best represented the group norm. Students who believed that their most prototypical classmate would take action to support immigrants expressed greater willingness to organize an event for World Refugee Day or attend a pro-immigrant demonstration. Strikingly, the influence of the quintessential group member was greatest among students who identified strongly with their group. These were the people who agreed with the statements such as, I often think about the fact I am a member of this class, and I have a lot in common with other classmates. The two of us are immigrants, and these findings give us hope. As the researchers put it, quote, in-group prototypes can have a key role in mobilizing advantaged group members in pursuit of a more equal society. The power of group norms has long been recognized in other domains. For example, young people's drug and alcohol use or risky sexual behavior is heavily influenced by what they believe their peers do. This insight has led to promising interventions. Learning that others in your group drink less alcohol than you do can persuade you to cut back on your own excessive consumption. Many students overestimate how much their peers drink. In one study, university freshmen who received accurate information about drinking behavior by students of their own gender reported imbibing about 25% fewer drinks a week five months later. Sohad Marar and her colleagues at the University of Wisconsin at Madison recently applied the same idea to intergroup relations. In recent years, universities and other organizations have invested heavily in training in which instructors extol the benefits of diversity and urge participants to be mindful of their own implicit biases. But those initiatives have a mixed record. Marar's team found that drawing people's attention to social norms could produce much better results. For example, the researchers showed students five-minute videos suggesting that most peers at their university support diversity and try to behave in an inclusive manner. Almost immediately, attitudes towards outgroups and appreciation for diversity improved among students from non-marginalized groups. Most people want to fit in, and the promotion of inclusive social norms unlocked their desire to be good group members. This intervention also had a profound impact on students from historically marginalized groups who reported that their peers were behaving more inclusively. They also experienced less anxiety, greater feelings of belonging, and even noted better physical health. Of course, universities are distinct places. In a broader society, the divides between groups are far deeper than on campus. Yet most humans define themselves in multiple ways. People of different races, political parties, or religious beliefs can share identities professionally as sports fans or as citizens. All of these identities are alternative ways of perceiving ourselves and our social worlds, and all are opportunities for communality and solidarity. When Martin Luther King Jr. urged the United States to, quote, live out the true meaning of its creed, he was calling for new norms of racial equality that were nonetheless grounded in the bedrock of American national identity. And I will have to add to that, they're grounded in the bedrock of the myth of American national identity, but not of the reality. The, the promise of America, the myth of America, the melting pot, the multicultural you know, a nation is appealing, but it's not the reality. The reality is genocide and hatred, and especially hatred of 
immigrants, new immigrants. The Europeans came and colonized the Americas and committed genocide against the native peoples here and then committed genocide against the black people in Africa who they captured and brought to the Americas to work as slaves for free labor to build our nation. Throughout that period and ever since, each new group of immigrants from a different region, the Asians, more Africans, Middle Easterns, all different types of groups that have come have been cast as outsiders, have been put down, have been attacked, have been oppressed until, well, not even until when they sufficiently assimilate and another group comes in behind them, that other group becomes a target. We're a nation that has a massive history of punching down, of each new group of immigrants as they start to assimilate, find the next group to oppress, to deflect the oppression from themselves and cast onto a new group. It's a horrible, horrible historic reality of America, of the United States. It is our true, our real national identity. It is not the myth. It is not what you learn about in the history books. Some identities cut across sectarian lines following the invasion and then the defeat of ISIS in northern Iraq. The Christian and Muslim communities living there were left deeply divided, but they had something in common, a passion for soccer. In an extraordinary recent experiment, the political scientist Salma Musa recruited amateur Christian soccer teams to join a new league. She arranged for half of the teams to remain all Christian, while the other half were joined by Muslim players. Playing together for a season with Muslim teammates made the Christian players express more inclusive attitudes compared with those on homogenous teams. The Christians on religiously mixed teams were more prepared to train with Muslims in the future, vote for a Muslim player to win a prize, and sign up for a similar cross-religion experience the next season. The benefits appeared to be particularly pronounced for players on winning teams. All of this contradicts commonly held notions about the tribal nature of group psychology. What many people call tribalism is not inevitable. Rather, it's a function of group norms. But the constant invocation of tribalism may create a self-fulfilling prop prophecy. People come to distrust, distrust other groups and falsely believe they need to discriminate against outsiders or suppress dissenters to maintain their status within their own group. Understanding how group identities combine with norms to shape human behavior also empowers people, and especially leaders, to focus more on cultivating healthy norms within their group. Rather than assuming that groups will slide into hostility and insularity, humans should hold ourselves to higher standards. And finally, this piece was published at theguardian.com, and this is written by George Monbiot. Now, it's a straight fight for survival. The Glasgow Climate Pact, for all its restrained and diplomatic language, looks like a suicide pact. After so many squandered years of denial, distraction, and delay, it's too late for incremental change. A fair chance of preventing more than 1.5 degrees centigrade of heating means cutting greenhouse gas emissions by about 7% every year, faster than they fell in 2020 at the height of the pandemic. What we needed at the COP26 climate conference was a decision to burn no more fossil fuels after 2030. Instead, powerful governments sought a compromise between our prospects of survival 
and the interests of the fossil fuel industry. But there was no room for compromise. Without massive and immediate change, we face the possibility of cascading environmental collapse as Earth systems pass critical thresholds and flip into new and hostile states. So does this mean we might as well give up? It does not. For just as the complex natural systems on which our lives depend can flip suddenly from one state to another, so can the systems that humans have created. Our social and economic structures share characteristics with the Earth's systems on which we depend. They have self-reinforcing properties that stabilize them within a particular range of stress, but destabilize them when external pressure becomes too great. Like natural systems, if they are driven past their tipping points, they can flip with astonishing speed. Our last best hope is to use those dynamics to our advantage, triggering what scientists call cascading regime shifts. A fascinating paper published this January in the journal Climate Policy showed how we could harness the power of domino dynamics, nonlinear change proliferating from one part of the system to another. It points out that cause and effect need not be proportionate. A small disturbance in the right place can trigger a massive response from a system and flip it into a new state. This is how the global financial crisis of 2008 and 2009 happened. A relatively minor shock, mortgage defaults in the U.S., was transmitted and amplified through the entire system, almost bringing it down. We could use this property to de detonate positive change. Sudden shifts in energy systems have happened before. The paper points out that the transition in the U.S. from horse-drawn carriages to cars running on fossil fuels took just over a decade. The diffusion of new technologies tends to be self-accelerating as greater efficiencies, economies of scale, and industrial synergies reinforce each other. The author's hope is that when the penetration of clean machines approaches a critical threshold and the infrastructure required to deploy them becomes dominant, positive feedbacks will rapidly drive fossil fuels to extinction. For example, as the performance of batteries, power components, and charging points improves and their costs fall, the price of electric cars drops and their desirability soars. At this point, in other words right now, small interventions by government could trigger cascading change. This has already happened in Norway where a change in taxes made electric vehicles cheaper than fossil fuel cars. This flipped the system almost overnight. Now more than 50% of the nation's new car sales are electric, and petrol models are heading for extinction. As electric cars become more popular and more polluting vehicles become socially unacceptable, it becomes less risky for governments to impose the policies that will complete the transition. This then helps to scale the new technologies, causing their price to fall further until they outcompete petrol cars without the need for tax or subsidy, locking in the transition. Driven by this new economic reality, the shift then cascades from one nation to another. The battery technologies pioneered in the transport sector can also spread into other energy systems, helping to catalyze regime shifts in, for example, the electricity grid. The plummeting prices of solar electricity and offshore wind, already cheaper than hydrocarbons in many countries, are making fossil fuel plants look like a filthy extravagance. This reduces the political costs of accelerating their closure through tax or other measures. Once the plants are demolished, the transition is locked in. Of course, we should never underestimate the power of incumbency and the lobbying efforts that an antiquated industry will use to keep itself in business. The global infrastructure of fossil fuel extraction, processing, and sales is worth somewhere between $25 trillion and $0, depending on which way the political wind is blowing. The fossil fuel companies will do everything in their power to preserve their investments. They have tied President Joe Biden's climate plans in knots. It would be no surprise if they were talking urgently with Donald Trump's team about how to help lever him back into office. 
and if they can thwart action for long enough, the eventual victory of a low-carbon technologies might scarcely be relevant, as Earth's systems could already have been pushed past their critical thresholds, beyond which much of the planet could become uninhabitable. But let's assume for a moment that we can shove the dead weight of these legacy industries aside and consign fossil fuels to history. Will that really have solved our existential crisis? One aspect of it, perhaps, yet I'm dismayed by the narrowness of the focus on carbon in the Glasgow Pact and elsewhere to the exclusion of our other assaults on the living world. Electric cars are a classic example of the problem it's true that within a few years, as the advocates argue, the entire stinking infrastructure of petrol and diesel could be overthrown. But what is locally clean is globally filthy. The mining of the materials required for this massive deployment of batteries and electronics is already destroying communities, ripping down forests, polluting rivers, trashing fragile deserts, and, in some cases, forcing people into near slavery. Our, quote, clean, green transport revolution is being built with the help of blood cobalt, blood lithium, and blood copper. Though the emissions of both carbon dioxide and local pollutants would undoubtedly fall, we are still left with a stupid, dysfunctional transport system that clogs the streets with one-ton metal boxes in which single people travel. New roads will carve up rainforests and other threatened places catalyzing new waves of destruction. A genuinely green transport system would involve a system change of a different kind. It would start by reducing the need to travel, as the mayor of Paris, Anne Hidalgo, is doing with her 15-minute city policy, which seeks to ensure that people's needs can be met within a 15-minute walk from homes. It would encourage walking and cycling by all those who are able to do so, helping to address our health crisis as well as our environmental crisis. For longer journeys, it would prioritize public transport. Private electric vehicles would be used to address only the residue of the problem, providing transport for those who could not travel by other means. But simply flipping the system from fossil fuels to electric cars preserves everything that is wrong with the way we now travel, except the power source. Then there's the question of where the money goes. The fruits of the new, quote, clean economy will, as before, be concentrated in the hands of a few. Those who control the production of cars and the charging infrastructure, and the construction companies still building the great web of roads required to accommodate them. The beneficiaries will want to spend this money, as they do today, on private jets, yachts, extra homes, and other planet-trashing extravagances. It is not hard to envisage a low-carbon economy in which everything else falls apart. The end of fossil fuels will not by itself prevent the extinction crisis, the deforestation crisis, the soils crisis, the freshwater crisis, the consumption crisis, the waste crisis, the crisis of smashing and grabbing, accumulating and discarding that will destroy our prospects and much of the rest of life on Earth. So we also need to use the properties of complex systems to trigger another shift, political change. There's an aspect of human nature that is simultaneously terrible and hopeful. Most people side with the status quo, whatever it may be. A critical threshold is reached when a certain proportion of the population change their views. Other people sense that the wind has changed and tack around to catch it. There are plenty of tipping points in recent history. The remarkably swift reduction in smoking. The rapid shift in nations such as the UK and Ireland away from homophobia. The Me Too movement, which in a matter of weeks greatly reduced the so social tolerance of sexual abuse and everyday sexism. But where does the tipping point lie? Researchers whose work was published in Science in 2018 discovered that a critical threshold was passed when the size of a committed minority reached roughly 25% of the population. At this point, social conventions suddenly flip. Between 72% and 100% of the people in the experiments swung round, destroying apparently stable social norms. 
As the paper notes, a large body of work suggests that, quote, the power of small groups comes not from their authority or wealth, but from their commitment to the cause. Another paper explored the possibility that Fridays for Future climate protests could trigger this kind of domino dynamics. It showed how, in 2019, Greta Thunberg's school strike snowballed into a movement that led to unprecedented electoral results for Green parties in several European nations. Survey data revealed a sharp change of attitudes as people began to prioritize the environmental crisis. Fridays for Future came close, the researchers suggest, to pushing the European political system into a critical state. It was interrupted by the pandemic, and the tipping has not yet happened. But witnessing the power, the organization, and the fury of the movements gathered in Glasgow, I suspect the momentum is building again. Social convention, which has for so long worked against us, can, if flipped, become our greatest source of power normalizing what now seems radical and weird. If we can simultaneously trigger a cascading regime shift in both technology and politics, we might stand a chance. It sounds like a wild hope, but we have no choice. Our survival depends on raising the scale of civil disobedience until we build the greatest mass movement in history, mobilizing the 25% who can flip the system. We do not consent to the destruction of life on earth. And that will wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Remember, you can follow You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at YCBNeutral. You can check out all the back episodes at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. And you can listen to this podcast and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at MovingTrainRadio.com. Now, a moment of Zin. Thanks for listening. History has taught me some strange arithmetic. Using swords, prison bars, and pistols. English is the art of bombing towns While assuring that you really only bless the ground Science is the honorable, beautiful study Where you contort the molecules and then you make that money In mathematics, dead children don't get at it But they count the cost of bullets coming out the automatic And I'm teaching my hands up Stand up, you need to tell us how to 